BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQBD Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, more than 9,700 Californians are hospitalized with a confirmed case of COVID-19, a state record that's nearly 90% higher than two weeks ago. As California grapples with its third and largest wave of infections yet, it's taking a particularly hard toll on healthcare workers who treat patients sick with COVID-19. Next on Forum, a panel of doctors and nurses join us to share what they're experiencing. We'll meet them after this news. You're listening to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Their shifts are long and exhausting, with patients who require more attention, and now they're facing the state's worst surge in coronavirus infections since the pandemic began. They're California's nurses and doctors who treat patients sick with COVID-19, and four of them have kindly given their time to us, reworking their shifts in some cases or giving up precious downtime in order to help us understand what they're going through. They're Alex McDonald, family medicine specialist at Kaiser Permanente Fontana Medical Center in San Bernardino County. Welcome, Alex McDonald. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Also with us is Parmal Barucha, a pulmonary critical care specialist at Dignity Health in Sacramento County. You may have heard his voice on the California Report earlier this morning. He was one of several medical professionals interviewed by KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg about the surge in COVID hospitalizations across the state. Parmal Barucha, thanks for joining us as well. Thank you so much for having me. Also with us is Mawata Kamara, a registered nurse at Alameda Health Systems San Leandro Hospital. Welcome to you, Mawata Kamara. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. And Amy Arlen, thank you to you as well. A registered nurse at Kaiser Permanente Fresno Medical Center. Thanks for joining us, Amy Arland. Thank you so much. Um, good morning, everyone. Amy Arland, I'll, I'll start with you. Can you tell us what it's like in the COVID ICU unit at your hospital in Fresno? Um, well, I just got off of a very harrowing night shift. Um, I also serve as what is known as a crisis nurse, which means that outside of the ICU, I round throughout the hospital and I look for patients that are maybe getting into trouble and might soon need an ICU bed to see if we can circumvent that. Mm -hmm. At this point, my ICU is at 100% capacity and we're having to come up with some creative ways of making space for the additional patients that are coming in. 
Um, that is a terrifying thing for me because never in my 20 year career have I had to turn patients away, send them home or deny them care. Um, and we are at the point now that we're having to triage who deserves an ICU bed and who doesn't. Oh my goodness. So then how are you going to accommodate more patients that are expected to come in if your ICU is at 100%? Earlier in the year, we um, had the ability to close down our operating rooms for only urgent emergent surgeries. And we took over some of that recovery room space to house um, many of our ICU patients that we didn't have room for. Now that the ORs are operating at full capacity all of the time, and we don't have that space available to us, we are having to look at converting conference rooms, the cafeteria, um, any other areas of the hospital that are not intended for patient care. Um, and looking at trying to house patients in those areas. Um, in our single private rooms, we are now shoving two beds into the room, which does not even leave the nurse enough room to move around in the room. There's no privacy. Um, so we try to um, put family members together in the same room if we can. Um, but there simply is no more room left at the inn. And my hospital is not the only one. Several of our hospitals are beyond capacity. And can you just talk a little bit about what it means to triage, what kinds of conversations you have, what it brings up for you as you're doing that? Um, yes, I can give you an example. So if I only have one ICU bed open and I have four patients that potentially need that bed, the doctors, the nurse, um, the management will get together and look at the severity of each patient um, and we actually really have to look at what are the chances of survival at this point um, and try to pick the best candidate for that bed. And those are really hard conversations to have with the other three patients that need to be in an ICU, um, but we can't put them there. It means that we're having a lot more conversations with frail elderly patients and people who have multiple medical problems you know, and saying, you, if you do come to the hospital with COVID, there's not going to be very much that we can do for you. Dr. Parmal Barucha, you have described moments in the COVID ICU as feeling like a war zone. Why does that feel like an apt description? So, um, first of all, thank you, everybody, and good morning. Um, very, very essential topic that we are discussing, um, because this takes into account not only... Um, not only patient care, but also what we as healthcare workers are going through, uh, because we are we are at the bedside. So yes, I did describe a few days back to one of your colleagues that it feels like a war zone, or it feels like this is a World War III, uh, mainly because we have lost about 280,000 lives in a matter of few months. And I, I, and I assume and anticipate that most of them, if not all, would have still been alive and we would have spent our Thanksgiving with them and Christmas with them. Having said that, this virus came out of nowhere um, and is affecting not only our elderly um, community members who are who are more prone um, to getting sick, but also we have started noticing a lot of young patients. And as Amy, Amy described very well, that space has become an issue, triaging has become an issue. So uh, think about it that most of the patients who are in ICU suffering from COVID-19, um, they are sickest of the sickest at this moment. Most of them, if not all, are on ventilators or what we call as high oxygen delivery devices. 
they need a lot of support one-on-one from the nurses because even if they move in the bed um, to turn, sometimes that oxygen drops significantly and need immediate care in terms of increasing the oxygenation or if they are on the ventilator, then giving them more sedation. So, uh, and, you know, unfortunately, if one of these patients happened to undergo cardiac arrest, um, then, uh, then the scene becomes very gruesome. In terms of in terms of every other personnel that we need to come and help us, uh, things will be lying all over the floors uh, because there is not enough time to to make your room neat and tidy. And it is not that you are done with one show at 10 to 11 um, because these patients keep on coming continuously. It's a 24 hour business that is that is being run right now. And and as Amy said, it's very hard. To, to turn down the patients. Luckily at Dignity Health in Sacramento, we have not yet required to do that. We still have capacity and, and we are able to provide um, care in a very safe environment. But if this continues the way the uptick is happening, then yes, it is, it is going to be survival of the fittest uh, and or, you know, um, we'll have to make very tough decisions as to who gets the scarce resources right now the resources are enough, but I cannot stress that all the resources are finite, including the manpower, including the doctors, including the nurses, yes. all the technicians who help us. Um, and, and if we do not get enough support from the community, then we are going to run out of each and everything. So, you know, so, so it's, it's, it's war. We are we are fighting with this with this virus which which cannot be seen. It is it is an enemy that that no matter what you do, uh, you know you you know it's not in front of you. Even though it's in front of you, you can't see it. It is an invisible uh, invisible guest that has not been invited. But now that it is here, it's not you know ready to leave. Mawata Kamara, you are a registered nurse at uh, San Leandro Hospital, and I understand you're in the ER, not in the ICU unit. Can you tell me about the patients you treat, about the day-to-day work of caring for a COVID patient in the ER? Certainly. Um, it's it, it's crazy because this morning I got up and I was kind of, I always leave messages on my social media about people, you know, wearing their masks and staying inside and um, and one thing we've always been worried about, especially in the ER or any place in the hospital for that matter, is staffing. Um, mm-hmm. We're starting to see patients come in again. It's like the beginning of COVID, um, you know, the pandemic's all over again. Um, we have, um, you know, I, my manager sent me a message this morning saying that our, inc- our census is going up and we need more nurses to pick up extra shift. Um, this is never... Um, it's never a safe situation because when nurses start working more, they get exhausted more. Um, mistakes are made more when people are exhausted and are not getting adequate sleep or rest at home. Um, in an emergency room, we're seeing a different type of uh, patient population as compared to the ICU. Before you know, COVID patients get to the ICU, they're already possibly sedated or intubated um, and for a different level of care. But when they come to us in the emergency room, um, when patients can't breathe, they have anxiety. Um, when anyone can't breathe, it, it brings a grave amount of anxiety and, you know, and, and to a lot of people now from what they see on C- T- um, TV, telling them you may have COVID is almost like a death sentence. It brings a, an, an, a huge, you know, an, a great deal of fear. 
So a lot of times nurses are placed in situations where, you know, uh, patients in a room, a nurse, one ER nurse have like four patients. And depending on what side of the emergency room she's on, she, you know, he or she might have up to four patients. Wow. If all of those patients are, you know, anxious about the littlest thing is, you know, going to the bathroom or trying to, you know, hearing a beeping sign for the monitor that they're not used to, it causes them to panic, which means that nurse have what, a couple of seconds before they can get to that patient's room before the patient is short of breath and, and it's a whole, you know, um, another factor on, 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 on how they deliver care to that patient. So it's been very, um, it's, this pandemic has been an emergency, uh, you know, uh, a very, it's an emotional roller coaster. I always say that, you know, we started this pandemic thinking that we were going to be just doing doing our jobs to the best uh, abilities that we can. But it turns out we, we had to fight um, not only do our job, we have to fight the hospitals that we were working with. We were not prepared. We're still not prepared. It's been over a year. We're still um, worried about things like having face shields when we go to work. Um, and we started off with, you know, N95, having adequate N95 masks. There were even talks about us using bandanas at one point. So it seems like, you know, we win some battles, but we're still losing a lot. Um, we're still worried about staffing at this point. And um, I and I have to, I hate to say it, but nurses predicted that this was going to happen. We knew it was going to happen. And it's sad that we're still not prepared. We're hearing stories about the toll this recent and most severe wave of COVID infections is having on California's healthcare workers. We're talking with nurses and doctors who've joined us to share their experiences. And I'd like to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are your questions about and reactions to what you've heard so far? What's, what's your experience as maybe a family member or you being hospitalized during the pandemic? Are you a healthcare worker who treats COVID patients and have an experience or reflection you'd like to add to the conversation or just general questions for our panelists? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. You can also email us, forum at kqed.org, or reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. As coronavirus infections soar in California, nurses and doctors are bracing for more people to arrive at their hospitals at a time when they're already stretched thin. They join us today to share their experiences. And if you want to join the conversation, you can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Email us at forum at kqed.org or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. We're talking with Amy Arland, a registered nurse at Kaiser Permanente Fresno Medical Center. Mawata Kamara, a registered nurse at Alameda Health Systems San Leandro Hospital, Parmal Barucha, a pulmonary critical care specialist at Dignity Health in Sacramento County, and Alex McDonald, a family medicine specialist at Kaiser Permanente Fontana Medical Center in San Bernardino County. And Alex McDonald, I know you treat patients both in the hospital at Fontana Medical Center, but you also treat non-hospitalized COVID patients remotely as well. Can you talk a little bit about the situation in San Bernardino County and also some of the, the hardest moments that you've experienced uh, caring for a COVID patient? Absolutely. So I, I think um, 
the this pandemic has affected all of us and healthcare workers across the board from the people that clean the floors all the way up to uh, the people that, that run the hospital at the highest levels. Um, as, a, as a family physician, you know, we have so many skills. We're trained very broadly. We treat everyone from newborn babies all the way to old people. We oftentimes we have additional um, specialty in, in different areas as well. Um, now, I work in the hospital as well as the outpatient setting on a normal basis. Um, but right now, with this, this, this rapid increase in, in number of patients uh, coming to the hospital, being admitted, um, we're being pulled more and more to the to the hospital to help there um, because we do have this broad skill set. That being said, we also are, are used to caring for pa patients um, in the clinics and also doing telehealth and video visits. This is something we've been doing for quite some time. Now, there was this rapid sudden shift um, back in back in March to, to uh, more and more uh, telehealth and virtual visits and keeping people home. So, you know, we're kind of pulled in so many different directions. And, you know, uh, my, my personal challenge is I want to care for every single patient to the absolute best of my ability. Um, but I'm only one person, right? And we're stretched so thin. I mean, I'm doing video visits with people at home on oxygen, who normally I would say, come to the hospital, I'm really worried about you. But, you know, we know that's probably would make a bad situation worse. So um, people, we've de developed really um, effective ways of trying to monitor patients remotely. We're having nursing calling people, we're having people on home oxygen with with pulse oximeters at home to kind of manage their symptoms and make sure we can keep them away from our overburdened and overworked um, emergency rooms and hospitals because we know if they went there they would fall to the very bottom of the of that um, triage pile. We we know from from studies in the past that patients actually tend to do better and recover better at home, and and if we can kind of keep them out of our hospitals, that's our challenge right now. Um, I come in every morning to at least ten to twenty emails. Um, usually by eight or nine o'clock, all of our appointments are completely booked for the day, be the, be them in person or, or virtual too. So we're stretched in so many different directions. Um, I think for me personally, um, the, the biggest challenge to, to this pandemic is it's a very isolating illness. Um, mm. I've had patients who come to the hospital and they're alone. They're alone. I've had patients say goodbye to loved ones over, over FaceTime. Um, you know, we're trying to preserve the, the, the PPE and the masks. So, so, you know, nurses are not able to attend to patients as often or, or everything that they need. You know, maybe I'm seeing the patient once a day. I, I, when I, when I see my hospitalized patients, I try to visit them at least twice a day, but in this situation, you know, calling them through the phone, um, these patients are so isolated, be it at home or in the hospital, and it just breaks my heart. I had one, uh, back in March, I had one elderly patient who ended up dying in the hospital completely alone, and it, it, it broke my heart, and, and we're doing everything we can, but at the same time, you know, we're stretched so thin. Um, we're having healthcare workers get sick and, and stay home, as they rightfully should. The last thing we want to have sick sick hospital healthcare workers coming in. Um, so it just, it just feels overwhelming. I think the biggest thing for us, too, is when you think about it, any kind of a natural disaster there's often a, a beginning a middle and a recovery right and and this this pandemic has lasted so long and we don't know where we are is this going to last another few months another year um and that sort of unknown is really weighing very very heavily on the mental health of our of our healthcare workers as well well this listener writes i'm so supportive of what our doctors nurses and hospital staff are going through i do wonder if there's a disconnect in the general population because many people know people who have had covid but the cases were mild we see high profile people recovering like most at the white house how do we make people see that this pandemic is real and not everyone will get covid and it will be like getting a cold what's your response to that dr mcdonald 
Yeah, misinformation is is abundant. Um, whether it be even people who've had family members get get sick, um, uh, I, I have that conversation every single day with every single patient I see, um, convincing people to get their flu shot um, when they're in clinic and and keep them healthy before they get sick, before they end up needing higher levels of care. Um, I, it's it's challenging to say the least. I don't even know what else to say. Um, I think you know individually people can can learn. I think collectively and doing doing this broad information, uh, pe people people don't don't understand it as much. They they can't uh, they can't wrap their head around it. As as one of our uh, callers said before, this is an invisible war, right? You can't see it. Um, hospitals. If you drive past a hospital, it doesn't look busy right now because they're not. They're not teams of, of cars lining up outside the hospital, right? They're all in the COVID tent. Um, uh, so I, it's it's extremely challenging. Part of my issue is just to get out there. I'm very active on social media, uh, getting the opportunity to speak to your listeners today as well. So I please, I beg people to take this seriously. Um, this is not the sniffles. This is not the flu. This is far, far worse. And it's something that has long-term ramifications as well, which we just don't know, don't yet know about. Dr. Barucha, what are patients like when they're on and when they get taken off a ventilator? So, um, because I would not know who the listeners are on, I would I would not want to make it very graphic, but I can say that if there is somebody who is on a ventilator because their lungs have failed and other organs are failing or have failed because of COVID-19, then more or less they would be lying on the bed like a lifeless body. That is what I call. Um, I call them as lifeless body because they have been heavily sedated as well as medically paralyzed. And so none of their muscles are moving. We don't want their muscles to move. We don't want them to breathe on their own because by doing that, they're going to cause more harm to their lungs and the need of oxygenation and the need from the ventilator is going to go up. So not only that they are, they are medically sedated as well as paralyzed, they also have multiple tubes um, sticking out, you know, from, in medical terms, from each orifice that you can think of. You would have tubes coming out of your mouth, um, out of the nose. You would have tubes um, to, to, uh, to collect your urine. If somebody is having diarrhea, then we need tube to collect all the stool so that, that the skin doesn't become infected from laying in the bed. You would have uh, bigger IV lines so that we can give toxic medicines um, that would normally burn the, the small veins, as well as another catheter in your artery to monitor the blood pressure continuously. Most of these patients are also going to be prone. What that means is that they are going to be, to be lying on their belly for about 18 hours a day. So, so if, if I take this picture and show to somebody who does not believe in COVID or who thinks that this is a hoax or who thinks that this is regular sniffle, I guess that they are going to have nightmares seeing their loved ones like this. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's not a pretty picture whatsoever. Having said that, we do take care of uh, two things that patient is not struggling to breathe because that causes a lot of anxiety, not only for the patient, but also for the staff and for anybody else who would be witnessing that, as well as when you have so many tubes and you are laying in the bed for so many hours, it is very uncomfortable. So we do take care of the pain issue. So those two things we do not compromise on. We don't want patients to be suffering because of pain or because of anxiety or struggling to breathe. 
um, when when patients are doing better in terms of the need of oxygenation, we do lighten their sedation to uh, to see if they wake up. And when they do wake up, uh, sometimes they would be very confused, and sometimes they get very agitated because they have lost so many days from their life. They would have no idea where they are. They would have no idea whether it is daytime, nighttime, evening. So, you know, there's a lot of what we can call it as post-traumatic stress disorder, or you can name it as sundowning or delirium. You can name whatever, whatever floats the boat. Having said that, patients do suffer from a um, lot of mental anguish as well as physical anguish. Let me go to some of our callers. Athena in San Mateo, join us. Hi, Athena. Hi. Um, I was listening to the nurse from Kaiser and saying that her capacity is full at 100% in Fresno. I was wondering if Kaiser or any of the other hospitals um, are transporting patients to other facilities in other areas that might have more availability of beds. Thanks, Athena. Amy Arland? We have not reached the point where we've had to transfer patients out yet, um, but we are talking about that. We have what we call a COVID task force that is a combination of managers and bedside nurses, and we discuss this every few days or so to see if we have reached that point. Um, We have had some of our um, ICU patients that require specialty treatment that my particular hospital doesn't offer. And so for those particular cases, we have transferred them to other hospitals outside of the area that can offer them that specialty treatment. Athena, thanks for the question. And and Casey writes, I'm a retired registered nurse. I was a union member for 20 years and in management for 15 years. I'm so sorry for what the panelists are going through, and I looked for the best way to help. I've been a volunteer contact tracer for Santa Clara County since May, and I urge all retired medical personnel to volunteer as well. You do not have to be a resident of the county. Moata Kamara, one of the things that I was wondering was how, how it's been for you and your family personally, in terms of the kind of toll it takes to be treating COVID patients, especially nurses who get so close and and cannot, of course, you know, maintain safe distance (laughs) when they're helping patients who are anxious or or need to be intubated and so so forth. Can you talk a little bit about how you're managing all of that? Sure. Um, COVID has had a huge impact on me and my family. Um, Right now I'm pregnant. I'm six months pregnant. So um, that's a whole nother um, you know, level of anxiety in itself. Um, I also have a five-year-old at home. And I think um, the best defense I had in the middle beginning of this pandemic was just to prepare myself. And a part of the way um, I helped, you know, I, I did that was to, I completely turned my garage into a decontamination center. Um, I came home every day. I changed my clothes before I came into my house. I, my shoes, I, I had, you know, some um, wipes down there. I made sure I completely decontaminated myself before I even came in. Um, to the house. Um, my five-year-old, um, there were times that I had to take her out of school because I would go to work. I've been I, out of work for possible contamination three times throughout this entire pandemic. And every time I was, I had to pull my kid out of school to the point where, um, you know, her daycare, I just completely took her out of daycare because I didn't want to risk her, um, you know, 
possibly contaminating other people's kids uh, because they're, you know, just my last shift at work, I was working with a patient that came in for, you know, she had asthma. She's always, you know, she comes to, we call her frequent patients, we call frequent flyer who frequently come to an emergency room and we're kind of familiar with them. And, you know, I worked with her for a few hours and then the doctors decided that they're gonna, you know, make her a person of interest or COVID. So now I have been working with this patient for almost an hour. And then, you know, it, what's going through my head is what if she was a COVID, what if she does have COVID? What does that mean for me? So I've had that, those instances of many times. Um, one of the biggest sacrifices I have to I had to make was just stay away from everybody. I, you know, and I'm asking everybody to do the same. My grandmother passed away through this pandemic. Um, I did not go to her funeral, even though it was a small, you know, family. Um, we did our best. People did our best to social um, distance. I did not go. Um, I'm constantly worried about. If I do get COVID, what's going to happen to me and my baby? What's going to happen to me and my child? Um, and that's something that's just, it's a reality. And my, I, I find that my best defense has been just kind of making sure that I hold ho the hospital that I work for accountable and making sure that they do have the PPE that we need at work. And if there's any problems there that we do, you know, we had to strike unfortunately through this pandemic because the hospital were not holding their end of the bargaining making sure that we were safe and, and when nurses are not safe their communities are not safe. Dr. Barucha you have mentioned that your biggest stress is bringing anything home to your elderly parents they live with you? Yes, my parents do live with me. Um, my dad is 75, mom is 70. My dad does have diabetes as well as um, chronic liver disease. So they are very immunocompromised if, if so be the, the label you want to label them. Um, and so yes, I am constantly worried um, that I'm going to bring something for them from work, and I'm going to make them sick. Um, they have not stepped out, frankly, since since the pandemic began in March. We do go once in a while to the pharmacy or or to grocery stores. Having said that, um, we have had no visitors to come see them. So yes, my dad is very um, depressed and and isolated, um, and so if he gets sick, I know that the culprit would be me. So that does bother me day in and day out. Amy Arlen, a similar question for you. How are you doing with you your own family? Um, <clears throat> that's a very emotional subject for me. I don't want to go too, too much in depth. Um, I have had to watch a coworker die in my unit. I have had to watch family members and friends suffer from this. I've seen entire families be hospitalized because they still just don't believe that this is real or that we should not be infringing on their freedom to do what they want. I have been in isolation since March 8th when I laid hands on my very first COVID patient. And that means that my family has been on lockdown as well. We've left the house. I have left the house exactly twice for non-work reasons since March 8th. Um, many nurses and doctors chose um, to try to keep their families safe by staying in hotels um, or living out of an RV. That would have been fine had this been a short-term illness 
and an epidemic, we never expected it to last that long. So after months of being away from their families, those nurses have now decided to go home. And just like Mawada said, we have decon zones. Um, I do in my household, same thing. You know, you have your stripped down area in the garage. You try to make sure that you take what I call the silkwood shower. You know, you scrub every inch of you to make sure that you don't have it on you because I'm neck deep in COVID cooties, as I call it, every single day of my life. Um, I have a nine-year-old who is um, doing the online schooling. I am blessed to have a husband who stays at home and does not have to go out and work. I have two grown children. Um, that when this pandemic hit and we were talking about uh, what we were going to do with visitation and visiting family members and friends, uh, we explained to them that they would not be allowed to come back and forth because, you know, mom works in a very high risk industry. And exactly like everyone else is saying, I would be the the person that would end up bringing it home to them. And um, I think the gravity of that is, is, what what affects us most. Honestly, uh, I don't think that many of us would feel the need to have to isolate and, and quarantine ourselves if our hospitals actually took better care of us and provided us with the safe work environment that we needed. It's because none of us are safe at work right now that we feel like it's necessary to go to such extremes. We're talking with Amy Arland of Kaiser Permanente Fresno Medical Center, Mawata Kamara of Alameda Health System, San Leandro Hospital, Alex McDonald of Kaiser Permanente Fontana Medical Center in San Bernardino, and Dr. Parmal Barucha, pulmonary critical care specialist at Dignity Health in Sacramento County. Dr. Barucha, I know you need to leave us now, and I just want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. We'll have more with Dr. McDonald, Mawata Kamara, and Amy Arland after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the toll this most recent severe wave of COVID infections is taking on California's healthcare workers. And we're joined by nurses and doctors who are sharing their experience with us today. Moata Kamara of Alameda Health System, San Leandro Hospital, a registered nurse there. Amy Arland, a registered nurse at Kaiser Permanente Fresno Medical Center. And Dr. Alex McDonald, a family medicine specialist at Kaiser Permanente Fontana Medical Center in San Bernardino County. And you, our listeners, are with us. What are your questions about and reactions to what you've heard so far? Are you or is your family member a medical professional who's treated COVID patients? Please share your stories. Maybe you also have been hospitalized for COVID and have something you would like to say as well. 866-733-6786 is our number. 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. Edward writes, we need reporters and mainstream news to step up in a way they did during wars to report the horrors of this illness in the hospitals. Where are the reports on Fox, CBS, NBC, etc., showing the severity of the situation on site at hospitals and care centers? And let me go to caller Karen in Oakland. Hi, Karen. Thanks for joining us. 
Hi, my name is Karen. I am a general internist. Can you hear me okay? I can. Yeah, and I'm also a palliative care doctor. And I tuned in a little late, but I also think this really underscores the importance of designating someone as a surrogate health care decision maker and also telling that person what's important to you. Obviously, our young people that have been hit may not have thought about this, but many of my elderly patients have, and they're very clear on what they would and wouldn't want, and that really alleviates the burden on your loved ones for having to guess and make assumptions in a time of crisis. I just wanted to add that. Karen, thanks Thanks for adding that. Really appreciate it. Let me bring Jennifer from San Francisco in. Hi, Jennifer. Good morning. Thank you very much for this topic. It's, it's, <laughs> I hate that it's needed. Um, my situation is my mother, who is 84 years old, she was an RN for 48-plus years. Um, she is scared stiff about this. Um, she, I haven't seen her in 10 months. She is, has mental health um, issues. She has heart health issues. She only has one lung due to uh, valley fever in her 30s. And I, I, I was hoping to find more resource for depression families. Her, I, I have this fear she she can barely get out of bed mm. and of resources for how to cope with this. She is being told she lives in an independent care here in Alameda that they will not allow her to see us until the pandemic is over. Jennifer, and thank you. how to deal with that. Yeah, I'm sorry. And to the last point, just one last point, my brothers and I uh, were made POA, uh, my Brothers, a POA for financial decisions on the POA and healthcare decisions. Hmm. And so that is, I can't begin to tell you how vital that is because if you think a loved one uh, going to hospital is going to get their wishes cared for specifically, uh, you have another thing coming in, it's just vital. And I, <laughs> I'm barely holding it together. Well, right. Jen- appreciate you calling in, Jennifer, and so sorry for what your mother and you are going through. Uh, Dr. Alex McDonald, any thoughts for Jennifer? Yeah, I mean, I'm so sorry to hear hear your, your story, and I hope you're doing okay and you're, you're reaching out to um, to get the mental health that you and, and your mother needs. Um, that is my day constantly. Um, every patient I interact with, there's some degree of depression or anxiety. Um, I haven't, to, to sympathize with you, I haven't seen my my parents or my in-laws in the past 10 months either. Um, to Similar to some of our other callers, we've been sort of self-isolating. So I think there is this... Um, there's the pandemic, right, that we're all worrying about, but the second surge or maybe even the, the, the third surge is the mental health implications of this, not only now, um, but these are going to last for years to come. Um, so uh, I've, I've prescribed more medication to help with depression and anxiety in the past, I think, 10 months than I usually do in, you know, multiple years put together. Um, every interaction we have, be it in the hospital or in person or, or over the virtual care, they, we hear about these stories um, and it breaks my heart. And uh, I know that our, our mental health colleagues are working overtime. They're doing everything they can virtually, um, which is a, a great um, uh, a forum with which to treat, to treat mental health conditions. It's obviously not the same as being in person, but if you are suffering from, from mental health um, concerns because of the pandemic and, and the, the, the myriad of, of 
ripple effects afterwards, I strongly encourage you to reach out to your doctor, uh, to help other healthcare professionals virtually, um, so we can make sure we maintain physical distancing and keep everyone safe. Um, but there are resources to help with uh, with the mental health um, burden. This is this is inflicting on all of us. Well, this listener writes, I hope that hospitals, employers, and the government step up to offer these brave medical staff members the mental health support they need. This is no different than being a soldier in war, and there is clearly a lot of post-traumatic stress here, not even post-traumatic current traumatic stress. We owe it to all of these frontline workers. I mean, Moata Kamara, is there support? Do doctors and nurses frequently talk about the emotional toll or professional challenges of all of this and, and get the kind of support they need? We often talk about it um, all the time. Me and my co- um, you know, co-workers, we talk about, you know, um, and I think in a way that that is our support, each other. Um, we talk about it at work. We talk about it, you know, when I have reunion meetings. And as far as, you know, um, getting support from our hospitals, uh, I don't feel like it's enough. I feel that everything that ho- the hospital has done to assist nurses or, you know, doctors has been due to a fight. It was not um, them coming to the table and realizing, hey, this pandemic is here. We've been going to it for so long. We realized that our staff may need assistance, but everything has happened because, you know, um, you know, either NNU or, you know, um, the governor uh, passing a new law, whether it was to have, um, you know, um, PPE, adequate PPE, or um, making sure now that, you know, the public health department just you know, with the help, uh, you know, work with NNU to make sure that um, healthcare workers get tested weekly. Uh, that's new. Um, and now the hospitals are finally sending us notices on, you know, making sure these things happen. Um, it, it's, it's been a rude awakening for me working in healthcare, um, turning on the TV and seeing all of these talks about us being heroes and, you know, how much people appreciate what we do, but then going to work and feeling the exact opposite. Hmm. Um, well, hospitals could have done more. Um, they could have done more to support, support us and have conversations about, you know, what do we do when we get exposed? There, there were times where staffs were exposed at work. And because I, I work with the union, I found out, but the hospital didn't notify us. So we have to go to them. And before they notify everybody else, that only it creates more anxiety. You have to wonder, do they really care? If something, you know, if they know that somebody I work with is exposed, but they don't tell us. So we, we, I depend on my coworker a lot. I depend on my coworker that has been my biggest source of mental health uh, um, and mental sanity. But unfortunately, I wish, you know, um, the facilities that we work in could do more. Well, similarly, Charlie asks, a nurse friend says his San Francisco hospital won't test employees for COVID. How can that be? I mean, Amy Erland, what's the experience like for you in Fresno? Is there enough testing going on? No, that's the short answer. Um, like I said, March 8th was when I took care of my very first COVID patient. Um, testing has not been offered to healthcare workers. If we felt like we were sick, if we were symptomatic, we had very strict criteria that had to be met. We had to go through many channels and a lot of red tape, including approval by not our primary physician, but our managers and employee health and an infectious disease doctor to decide if we were sick enough to be tested. It took me almost 
well, let's see. The first time I got tested was in March because I, I forced it, but I didn't get tested again until just three weeks ago. So how long is that between tests? And I've been directly taking care of COVID positive patients the entire time. Um, there are several workers who have never been tested and it was not until recently, and again, have to laud the, the union for their fierce advocacy for us at the state level to get CDPH to issue an all facilities letter to make sure that frontline healthcare workers exposed to COVID get regular testing. And even though we have that letter, you know, our hospitals are telling us, well, it's just a recommendation. We don't have to do this. Um, we continue to keep the pressure on them and let them know that, you know, if, if I am a nurse and I'm asymptomatic, but I'm positive, I could potentially be spreading it to every patient in that hospital that I come into contact with. I could be giving it to my coworkers. And as hard as we have been struggling to try to keep ourselves safe and alive through this, it's just unacceptable. Alex McDonald, what's it like for physicians? Are physicians getting enough testing? Yeah, um, this has been a, a huge struggle uh, right from the outset here. Um, you know, I feel very fortunate that, you know, Kaiser Permanente here in Southern California um, has been very supportive. You know, I have all the, the PPE that I need. Uh, we've been testing when when appropriate uh, to make sure we can keep our doctors and our nurses um, uh, healthy and, and on the job caring for these patients. Um, it, it's, a, it's a huge struggle, though. I mean, I had patients who told me they waited three hours in line for COVID testing um, last week um it's it's our systems are being completely overwhelmed so you know I, I feel fortunate that where i am i have what i need it it breaks my heart to hear that other people don't have what they need um i really worry particularly about some of our our small um our small hospitals and rural areas and, and small and solo physicians um who who are completely on their own in some respects i know uh the california academy of family physicians and the california California Medical Association have done a lot to help and support a lot of these small and solo practices, but it's yes. a huge challenge across the board, um, and, and it uh, I, 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 it breaks my heart. What about in terms of support or an ability to talk about or address, you know, emotional or professional challenges among physicians? Is there a culture of that? Uh, that has improved. <laughs> yeah, you know, I guess full, full disclosure, my wife is a psychiatrist, um, so I'm. This is a, an issue very much at the forefront of, of my mind as well. Um, there, there is a huge. Um, you know, there's always been this stigma um, with with medical professionals to to kind of keep stay strong and, and stay steadfast and, and not show weakness. Um, but at the same time, that only just results in, in more more burnout and and, and more emotional. Um, uh, injury, so to speak. Um, we have a great uh, wellness committee here uh, at Kaiser Permanente in Fontana, and that's been a huge initiative, not not just now, but for the past five years or so, to really focus on physician wellness because, um, you know, if you can't care for yourself, how are you going to care for somebody else? You know, the the analogy of the, the airplane at the, the briefing, you always put your own oxygen mask on first before you can help someone else put their oxygen mask on. And um, that's been the message time and time again here. So, again, it's a challenge. Um, we have this this culture within healthcare, uh, particularly within physicians, where you don't show weakness and you don't admit defeat. Um, 
Uh, and I think this this pandemic is is exacerbated that in some respects. To someone's point, we're being called heroes, right? But then at the same time, if we show weakness, then that that that's counter to that narrative. Um, so it's been a huge struggle across the board. I, I I feel like I have what I need. I have resources. We have a um, a second victim uh, program here for physicians who who suffer mental health issues after a, a patient injury um, or, or death. So. You know, there's so many different ways uh, that in, individual um, physician or healthcare worker uh, can can deal with their own, own mental health and their own wellness. So trying to trying to meet everyone sort of where they are and providing a lot of resources um, is a huge challenge. Again, I feel very supportive in my organization and and what I have, um, but I know that's not the case for everyone. Mm. We're talking with Alex McDonald, a family medicine specialist at Kaiser Permanente Fontana in San Bernardino County, Mawada Kamara, registered nurse at San Leandro Hospital, and Amy Arland, a registered nurse at Kaiser's Fresno Medical Center. And you, our listeners, are with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Caller Anna in Oakland, join us. Thanks so much for calling. Hi, I'm a nurse at a prestigious hospital in the Bay Area, perhaps one of the most famous in the world. And I'm calling in to talk about, you know, the, to echo the lack of support and the lack of, frankly, care that our union even and the staff of our hospital seem to care about the safety of nurses. Not only have I lost my job because I was not allowed to go to remote, even when we don't have patients in the clinic, but we are offering 100% in the outpatient clinics, despite the fact that we are being told that we need to restrict in-person visits. And my best friend who's in the ICU volunteered to go help in a hospital that didn't have the support. And even though she's only gone for two weeks, they terminated her benefits for those two weeks that she will not be at the hospital, even though she's going to help in a needed area. So I think a big issue here is that our hospitals are not showing any sort of mental health support or even care for our safety. And these are not, you know, community hospitals, nothing against the Alameda Health Systems, but these are some of the most prestigious hospitals. And I am very scared for patients that are going there when we have this many nurses that are coming in despite any sort of support for their safety. Anna, thanks. Amy Arland, you know, we had uh, reporter Ed Young on a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things that he had talked about was how the most precious resource in the U.S. healthcare system is not a, a miracle drug, but it's really its healthcare workers. And he said that they are exhausted, they are burning out. Do you think that's an accurate statement? Yes and no. Um, <clears throat> the reason being, Hospitals had chronic staffing shortages before this pandemic. That was not something new. It's not something that just recently popped up. They were aware of critical staffing shortages. And instead of trying to prepare ahead of time for the unknown and staffing us appropriately or making sure that they um, secured additional staff, they waited until the last minute when things really were dire and relied very heavily on temporary staff. They hired um, a very, very large volume of what we call per diem nurses. These are nurses that only work occasionally as needed, but don't work, you know, regularly in a hospital. And sometimes they work multiple facilities. They also relied heavily on traveler nurses from out of the state. That worked fine for a while. Um, when, when there were states that we could pull nurses from that did not have large outbreaks and still had plenty of staff. Those pools have now all been exhausted. 
no one expected this pandemic to last this long. But like Mawada had said earlier, the nurses knew and we gave them warning months ago that this was going to happen and that we needed to work harder from the start to make sure that we secured adequate staff, that we hired up, that we had additional resources. We need nurses aides, we need secretaries, we need just extra pair of hands, you know, to be boots on the ground when this, you know, hit us hard and when we had humongous surges. So um, calling it a staffing shortage and calling it burnout was really quite by design. Um, Mm. The hospital industry has been running lean. They use what's called the lean model of staffing to make us do more with less. And that has been happening over the last decade where they put more and more responsibility on the primary frontline staff, such as nurses. Um, and I can tell you in, in my COVID unit, I am now the janitor. I empty my own trash. I am the lab technician. I have to draw all of my own labs. I am the respiratory therapist who has to make adjustments to those oxygen machines myself. Um, I, I am doing all of these extra jobs that I used to actually have people to help me with. Um, So so that is what is truly causing the burnout is that the hospitals had plenty of time to prepare and they chose not to. Well, what's amazing is even with everything that you're going through, the care that uh, people feel they get, at least this listener who writes, I was a COVID patient at Kaiser San Francisco and had the most incredible care. These folks are superheroes to me in my family circle. I can just say to people, this is real and people need to take this seriously. I was asymptomatic and it was my migraine that alerted my doctors. Thank you to all of the healthcare workers risking their lives. Thank you, Amy Arland, Mawata Kamara and Dr. Alex McDonald. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.